well, I don't know if you're like me, uh, but today, Friday, Saturday, uh, I've been shaking my head at the horror of the Christchurch mosque massacre and ashamed that it seems to allegedly be uh, initiated by an Australian. Shaking my head at the death of so many innocent people, including children. Uh, It's not that hard in this case to find someone to blame here. But what about the Christchurch earthquake? Same place, 2011. Billions of dollars of damage, 185 people killed, many more injured. Who do we blame then? Uh, For many people, natural disasters, the answer is God. Uh, And so lots of people refuse to have anything to do with a God who would let those sorts of things happen. Now, the Bible has all sorts of things to say on that subject, but there's one thing I do want to say, uh, and that flows directly from our passage today, and that is being a Christian doesn't make you immune from bad things like this happening. Being a Christian doesn't make you immune from bad things like this happening. I'm not sure if anyone's ever done any sociological statistical analysis or not, but it seems to me that God's people are just as likely as anyone else to suffer tragedy. Life-threatening illness, death of loved ones, destruction of property, maybe even more likely. Case in point, Joseph. His story takes up the rest of Genesis from chapters 37 through to 50. Uh, He's one of Jacob's 12 sons. Second verse of chapter 37, we see he's tending the flocks with the rest of his brothers. And if anyone gets to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? In my mind, it's Joseph. Uh, In fact, sometimes it seems the more he does the right thing, the more trouble he gets into. We've seen already he's the son of Rachel, Jacob's favourite wife. That makes him the favourite son especially since Rachel has just died back in chapter 35. So verse 3 of chapter 37, we read that uh, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. And then we read he made a richly ornamented robe. Now the footnote in your Bible says we're not quite sure what that word means. Uh, Other versions will have technicolour or coat of many colours and... um, that makes for a good musical, it, uh, uh, but it could have just been richly ornamented. It could have just been a very uh, wealthy robe. Now, uh, it makes the other brothers jealous, but to make it even worse, Joseph is a dreamer, a couple of dreams, uh, whose meaning is pretty obvious. Verse 7, uh, they're all binding corn in the field, but his sheaf stood up and the brothers' sheaves bowed down. And then there's a second dream where uh, his mum and dad get involved as well, the sun and the moon, as well as 11 stars bow bow down uh, to Joseph. Uh, Now, Joseph, in the uh, impetuosity of youth, instead of just being quiet, uh, he tells his brothers, which seems like bragging to them and so they hate him even more. Joseph, dressed in his richly ornamented robe like a prince, Uh, one of the youngest in the family, now he's dreaming, Uh, everyone's going to come and bow down to him. He may as well have a target painted on that brightly coloured coat. 
Second half of chapter 37, he's sent out to the field to check on his brothers. They've had enough. Here's a good opportunity to kill him. Now Joseph may have been a bit of a pain in the neck, but he certainly didn't deserve this. Uh, first plan is to kill him and drop him in a hole. That's uh, verse 19. Then they can tell Dad a ferocious animal's eaten him. Uh, verse 21, though, Reuben, the eldest, tries to stop him and he manages to tweak the plan. Just take the coat and drop him in the hole alive. Uh, and they do that. At least this way they won't have any blood on their hands. Reuben plans to come back later and rescue him. Uh, Except they're in the middle of lunch, sometime later a camel train comes over the hill, a caravan on its way to Egypt, at which point Judah has an idea, let's not kill him, let's sell him instead, let's make something out of the deal. Reuben somehow missed out on the vote, maybe he's off watching the sheep, he gets back, verse 29, Jacob's already gone and he's distraught, what are we going to tell Dad? And so what they do, they get Joseph's beautiful robe, they kill a goat, they dip the robe in the goat's blood and then they take it back to their dad in verse 32 and say, look what we found. Uh, This is deceptive coat number one. These chapters have coats all the way through. I don't know if you've noticed how often dead goats and pieces of clothing come up in this story of this family but each time they are tools of deception. Last time, maybe you remember, Jacob fooled his dad Isaac using a coat and a goat. Uh, Now his sons do the same thing to him. How cold-hearted is this scene? Uh, The father is inconsolable, the brothers stand around, the sons stand around while uh, looking on without saying a word. But turn around for a moment, imagine you're Jacob, totally unaware of your brother's plans, A friendly wave as you come over the hill and find them uh, looking after the sheep. They grab you, strip off your coat. Before you know it, you're looking up at a small patch of sky from the bottom of a well. But it gets worse. Next thing you know, they've sold you, handed you over to slave traders and you're headed to a foreign land. You're never going to see your, your, your family again by the look of it. Well, that's the end of chapter 37. Chapter 36, uh, the scene switches back to the brother Judah. Now this is a story that will make your hair curl. Uh, It's a story that we will leave for another day. Yes, I know, I'm chicken. Uh, But it seems to be a contrast for chapter 39. seems to be a contrast for chapter 39. Uh, Together they're two chapters about desperate housewives. Uh, One is a story to do with Judah, who behaves disgracefully. The other's to do with Joseph, who's an absolute gentleman. 38 is a story about Tamar, Judah's widowed daughter-in-law and she's desperate to get pregnant to keep the family line going. Judah mistakes her for a prostitute and says, come to bed with me. Now they're words which will echo uh, into the next chapter where we'll see the mirror image, uh, the white for Judah's black. Uh, Same proposition is put to Joseph who behaves very differently. So we move on to chapter 39, spotlight's back on Joseph and it's a story about another deceptive quote, uh, deceptive coat. Joseph's been sold as a slave to Potiphar, he flourishes and we're told why. Even though the brothers have sold him as a slave, God is ruling. 
God is in charge. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. As far as slaves go, Joseph's pretty impressive. He's faithful, he's wise, he's reliable. And so Potiphar gives him, entrusts him with everything he owns. Verse 6, Potiphar left in Joseph's care everything he had. He concerned himself with nothing except the food he ate. It's not a bad life, is it? Until you hear the echo of those faithful words, uh, the words we heard back in chapter 38, come to bed with me. Uh, But in exactly the opposite situation. Uh, Joseph's well built and handsome. Potiphar's wife takes notice of him and says, come to bed with me. Uh, Almost exactly the same words as Joseph's sleazy brother uses in the chapter before, but this time the roles are reversed. If it had been Judah, he would have been off like a flash. But Joseph is somebody different. He is one man who is a man of integrity in his whole family. One man who knows the difference between right and wrong. Verse 8, he refused. Uh, I wonder if you've had an offer anything like that. Maybe it's been flattering. Uh, Let me suggest Joseph offers an excellent model Look at his words. First of all, he's loyal. He says, no, my master, your husband, he trusts me. He's entrusted me with everything that he owns. He's withheld nothing from me except for you because you're his wife. Faithfulness matters in marriage. To throw it away, well, it betrays your own spouse. It betrays the person you sin with. It betrays their spouse. And deep down we know it matters. Joseph knows it. And he gets it absolutely right there at the end of verse 9. It's more than just a matter of loyalty. He says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? But verse 11, she's relentless. Another day, no servants are around. She tries it again. She grabs his cloak. With the same invitation, Joseph tears himself away and runs out of the house but leaves the cloak behind, verse 12. Now, can I say very directly this morning, if you're here today and you're right on that borderline or maybe even if you've crossed it, if you're on the brink of something like this, listen to Joseph when he says, you're not just betraying a friend and a family, you're sinning against God. Listen to Joseph and run away. Imitate Joseph. Right through the Bible that message is the same. Flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6 says. Maybe that's a warning you need to hear. Now the opportunities today are almost limitless in our technological age. But don't entertain the idea for a moment. It may be flattering but it's not worth it. Run away. Joseph ran but he left his cloak behind. And from this point on he's got to be wondering what he's done to deserve such a hammering. Sold as a slave, he's clawed his way back, minding his own business, in fact acting with absolute integrity and yet look what happens. (laughs) Look what happens. Potiphar's wife screams as Joseph runs. And she holds on to the cloak until Potiphar comes home and then she lies to him. It's another case of a deceptive cloak. She says, this Hebrew slave 
came to make sport of me. I screamed and he left his cloak behind. Here it is. The evidence proves it. Potiphar doesn't stop to ask questions and Joseph's thrown in prison where he stays forgotten for two whole years but even there the Lord is with him again. Verse 21, he's put in charge of the other prisoners and once again he rises to the top. So we move into chapter 40 where we read about more dreams. Uh, Two of the king's servants, God has a message for them and for Joseph. Uh, And God says, uh, Joseph says in verse 8 that God is the one who will give interpretations because they're his dreams. Uh, For the cupbearer, God's message is there'll be release and restoration, but for the poor old baker, well, the news is not so good. He'll be hung. And even though Joseph gets it 100% right, and even though he asks the wine taster to put in a good word for him, the wine taster forgets and he's still stuck in prison. And it's not until Pharaoh himself has a couple of dreams, another set of two dreams. It's interesting, isn't it, the, the, uh, the, uh, how it goes with the, the sets of two. Chapter 41, verse 1, two long years later uh, until Joseph finally reappears on the scene. Uh, these dreams, once again, are given by God. Seven fat cows grazing, followed in verse 3 by seven of the ugliest, scrawniest cows you've ever seen and the skinny ones eat the fat ones. Uh, Verse 5, he dreams again, same dream, but this time it's corn instead of cows. When the next day he's talking about the weird dreams he had, the chief cupbearer finally remembers that there's someone in prison who can figure out dreams. Joseph's brought in, and he comes before Pharaoh, and he's gone from zero to hero. Because even though Joseph can't interpret dreams, God can. Pharaoh tells him the details. Uh, Verse 17 to 24, fat cows, skinny cows, fat corn, skinny corn. And Joseph knows exactly what they mean. Seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. Seven years of unprecedented economic growth followed by the recession we had to have. Uh, And through Joseph, God is actually giving a warning of what's to come. You see it there in verse 32. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. It's an interesting take on prophecy. Sometimes prophecies and dreams are warning. Sometimes, you know, change your behaviour or this will happen. But other times, like here, it's saying this is definitely going to happen, there's no escape, uh, so get yourself ready. So make some plans. Joseph says, here's what you should do. Find somebody wise and put him in charge. Store 20% during the good years. Disperse it during the bad years. It's a great plan. And Joseph uh, and Pharaoh knows just the man for the job. And uh, in verses 37 to 40 of chapter 41, Joseph once again makes it to the top of the heap. And Pharaoh says in verse 38, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God? The answer, of course, is no. Joseph is distinctive. His wisdom, his discernment, all because he has God's spirit. And so in verse 41, Joseph is put in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He gets a signet ring, he gets another new coat. He's doing well with the coat. With the coats, the robes of fine linen, makes the old coat look pretty lame. 
He gets a gold chain around his neck, he gets a chariot, it's all part of the package and he oversees the economy through prosperity and then through famine, exactly as he foresaw. Uh, The fact is God has put Joseph through some bad times for a good reason. Good for Egypt but good especially for his brothers, for this special family. They're caught up in that same famine back in Canaan. They're at the point of death, they finally hear about grain in Egypt and they head off there to buy buy some. And where, uh, as you can see in chapter 42, they bow down, verse 6, to their young brother Joseph, exactly as he dreamed years before. Joseph recognises them but pretends he doesn't uh, because as we'll see next time, he's going to put them to the test. That's next week. But we need to jump ahead for a moment to the end of the story, to one of the key verses in the whole book of Genesis. Because the fact is, if Joseph hadn't been in Egypt, if he hadn't been in the right place at the right time to interpret Pharaoh's dream, if he hadn't risen through the ranks to the point where he could ultimately save his family from extinction, then all of God's promises would have come to nothing. The fact is, Joseph's brothers treated him like dirt, And to top it off, he spent years in prison, unjustly accused. And after his father dies in Genesis chapter 50, well, Joseph's brothers are worried at this point. And they say, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? Now that Dad's gone, he's going to come down like a tonne of bricks. In verse 15 of chapter 50, they come and throw themselves at his feet. And have a look at Joseph's reply, verse 19. It's a perspective that sums up a lot of what we've been talking about these last three weeks. Uh, As human bad choices are so often turned around, deceivers who want to bless themselves find themselves blessed by God anyway. And Joseph says in verse 19, Don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? It's not my job to seek vengeance. And he says this in verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, so don't be afraid. God uses the intentions of evil, sinful men, intentions aiming to hurt and bring pain and revenge. He uses them to achieve good, to guide, to reveal, to direct to raise up spirit-filled saviours and then use those saviours to bring salvation. This is the God who fills Joseph with his spirit so he can save his family line in spite of that family's uh, appalling track record. In spite of betrayal and false accusation, God is going to use all of that stuff and turn it around. I wonder if that reminds you of another situation. I think we're meant to see Jesus here, uh, the one on whom God poured out his spirit without measure. And while the leaders of Israel plotted against Jesus and even his friends betrayed him, God uses all of that for good because the perfect innocent one dies and takes our penalty and saves us. They meant it for evil, God intended it for good to accomplish What's now being done, the saving of many lives. But those words that Joseph uttered could be perfectly applied to Jesus. When bad things happen, no matter how bad they get, 
look to the example of Jesus. Uh, Paul puts it that way in Romans 8, 28. A well-known verse, but look at what follows this verse. Uh, 8, 28, he says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. We know that, yet often it's hard to see it, isn't it? And yet Paul goes on to say, it's not because of our circumstances that we can be hopeful, but because of Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? How can we be sure God's for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with his son, graciously give us all things? The cross is where, the cross is uh, what we're to look at when we wonder where the justice is in our life, when we wonder why we're suffering, if we wonder whether God really knows and cares and is doing anything. When we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We have to look at the cross. Paul goes on, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So he says, if that's that's all true, who can separate us from God's love? Can trouble separate us? Can hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, any of those bad things that are happening to a good person, Can those separate us from the love of God? Nothing can do that. And so when you're in your dark days, in those days when you feel like Joseph, when nothing seems to be going right, be sure of this, God is reliable. He is trustworthy. We can look at the story of Joseph, but let's look to the cross. That's our guarantee that our God is working all things for good, for the saving of many lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this story. We pray that you would help us uh, to see in our own lives, in our own difficulties, your goodness and your wisdom. Uh, Help us especially, uh, as we look to the Lord Jesus, uh, to see your sovereign purposes worked out in his life uh, and how we uh, are saved and how you love us and that nothing can separate us. Nothing. Nothing of the difficulties that we experience. Uh, Help us to be trusting you uh, through all of these things. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.